ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirkanish right here in the middle. This is the Smirkanish podcast for independent minds. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, how do I even get into this? Heat waves, wildfires, drought, extreme weather events all over the headlines and have been. I was in my garden yesterday so relieved that it was 87 degrees. Like, ah, 87. I can handle this. I can weed again. In my July 19 survey question at Smirconish.com, 85.86% of you agreed that the global heat wave should be a tipping point for the climate change debate. But will it be? I saw just yesterday, and we we posted this at Smirconish.com. It was an Axios piece. They wrote a report detailing that in just three days, Greenland melted 18 billion tons of water into the North Atlantic. Ready for this stat? I wondered when the people who determined how to make us visualize this. I wondered if they had Joe Manchin in mind because they said that's enough water to cover all of West Virginia with one foot of water, which is pretty terrifying. And it also makes a a position about his view of uh, fossil fuels. So uh, what a pleasure in this context to nonetheless bring on Michael Mann, author of The New Climate War. He's an environmentalist and distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State, who will soon be joining the University of Pennsylvania faculty in September as a presidential distinguished professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science. You will recall that he started researching global temperature trends back in the 90s. It was his research. He always credits his colleagues. Good for him. But it was really his research that led to the creation of a signature image of a climate change hockey stick curve. In other words, his portrayal of of climate patterns showed, just picture in your mind's eye a hockey stick where there's consistency and then all of a sudden there's the blade. Well, he showed that global temperatures increased in alignment with the Industrial Revolution and that greenhouse gases contributed to a rate of temperature increase not seen in 2,000 years. This is Michael Mann. Dr. Mann, thanks so much for coming back to the program. Hey, by the way, congratulations on moving to Penn, which means we'll be neighbors and hopefully we'll, we'll get to make one another's acquaintance at long last. I'm uh, absolutely looking forward to that, Michael, uh, whether it's coffee or, or a beer. Um, uh, I, I both. am very much looking forward to that. So, so you know, thanks um, for having me on. I would say it's a, it's a pleasure to talk with you. It always is a pleasure to talk with you, but we always have bad news to talk about. And yeah, but a lot of a lot of bad now. news, especially now. Yeah. Hey, how about that Axios uh, imagery? Because I'm I'm always looking like I'm looking at the pictures of Lake Mead. I'm looking at the Great Salt Lake imagery. And I, I, I really dove into that story here on air recently. Yeah. When when you tell people that enough there has been enough melting in three days at Greenland to flood West Virginia with a foot of water. That's unbelievable. That brings it home to me. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and I do think that that was tailor-made for Joe Manchin. Hopefully he's listening. Uh, and, you know, this is a year later, a, a year ago, um, enough melt from Greenland happened over the course of last summer. In fact, just in the month of July to raise global sea level about a half a millimeter. Now, that sounds like a very small amount, but it's actually visible to the human eye. So we, if you were watching very carefully over the course of July, 
you could actually see the global sea level rise because of the meltwater from Greenland. And so this stuff is unfolding. You know, I sound like a broken record. It sounds like Groundhog Day because we say this over and over again. Many of these impacts are unfolding faster and with greater magnitude than we predicted. That's true with the collapse of the ice shelves and the ice sheets, which are beginning to um, send large amounts of water melt water into the ocean, raising global sea levels. And it's true with these extreme weather events that go beyond what our models predicted. And that's probably because of processes that we can see are playing out in the real world related to the sort of strange behavior we're seeing with the jet stream in the summer. Um, processes that are not well captured in the climate model. So, you know, as you know, the, um, the critics love to attack climate modelers and climate models as being alarmist. But if anything, it's the opposite. Um, in many respects, the models that we use have actually underpredicted some of the changes we're seeing. And we're seeing that play out right now, this summer, with these extreme weather events. Uh, in Philly, I think there was a heat index close to 110 degrees. Uh, that, that combination of triple-digit heat and uh, the humidity that came with it. I don't know if you were working in your garden on Sunday, but if you no, were, you might have I been was feeling doing, 110 degrees. Yeah. No, I was doing nothing. I was doing nothing at all on Sunday <laughs> because I, I, I was just, it was just too damn hot. So the hockey stick yeah. model from 1998, has that changed? It sounds to me like, if anything, you underestimated and the blade, if we all envision a hockey stick, is even more elongated. Yeah, that's exactly right, Michael. Uh, you know, there are th this effort is now two decades old, um, and you know, science evolves, and other scientists come to the table with new data, with new methods. And so, if you look, for example, at the most recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and I think we might have had a conversation about it when it when we it did. appeared. Yep. Um, yeah. So um, that presents sort of an, a new hockey stick um, that is longer. Uh, because they can go back even further. And the blade has gotten sharper because the warming has continued over the past couple decades. The planet has continued to warm up. So what we have now is much longer, much sharper hockey stick. And it really does drive home, you know, the profound impact that we are having on this planet. To someone who says... Come on, this is just weather. We've had heat waves before. Weather fluctuates. The nature of the beast is fluidity. Uh, that in and of itself is not indicative of some climate change long scale that's taking place. You would say what? I would say, you know, 100 million years ago when dinosaurs roamed the, the polar regions of the planet, yeah, the planet was warmer than it is today. That's because of carbon dioxide levels that built up due to natural processes over a hundred or million years or longer. That same carbon dioxide came back out of the atmosphere over the subsequent hundred million uh, years as geological processes absorbed that carbon. What we're doing now is we're taking all of that carbon that existed during the time of the dinosaurs in the atmosphere that got buried over a hundred million years because of natural processes, and we're putting it back into the atmosphere now, but we're doing it a million times faster. We're doing that not over a hundred million years, but over a century. And there is no precedent uh, for you know, the, the rate of warming and the impacts that that is having now. No precedent as far back as we can go. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. I still have the hockey stick in my head. 
the part where the blade hits the stick, that's the Industrial Revolution? That's the commencement of the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's when we see that inflection, where we see what was a gentle, long-term, slight cooling trend as we went from sort of the natural warm period, the medieval era, into the colder Middle Ice Age. It was this very gently down-sloping trend over a thousand years, and then you hit that inflection point where temperatures rise well beyond anything um, that's seen in the past over just the last century. And so it does look like, you know, as you say, a hockey stick turned on its side. Is it too late? Well, that's so the bad news is we're seeing devastating climate consequences play out in real time. We're watching it happen right now this summer. That's the bad news. There is great urgency. We have to act now. The good news is, and this again comes from the science, the science that's been done over the last decade or so using more elaborate models that account, for example, for the the way that the ocean can absorb some of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. What these models now show is that if we stop putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere, the surface temperature of the planet stops warming almost immediately. And so there is a very direct and immediate consequence of our efforts to decarbonize our economy, to move away from fossil fuels. And it is still possible if we can bring those carbon emissions down by 50% within the next decade, that's an uphill you know, uh, effort. But if we can do that, we can prevent planetary temperatures from warming beyond three degrees Fahrenheit, where, where we would really start to see far worse consequences. Okay, we can stop the warming. Here comes a dopey question. Can we also return slightly to where we were? Can we bring about cooling? Yeah, so first things first, as they say, right? Um, The first thing to do is to stop digging the hole that we're digging, Uh, stop putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere. But yes, there are sort of various um, approaches, carbon sequestration, natural carbon sequestration, massive planting of trees, for example, and potentially artificial carbon sequestration, building structures that remove carbon. These are like artificial trees, and they remove carbon from the atmosphere, and we bury it down in the ground. So there are ways to slowly draw down those carbon dioxide levels. The technology is still developing. It's not yet there where we can implement it at scale. But ultimately, we could make use of that technology, but it'll be a drop in the bucket if we don't stop pumping carbon pollution into the atmosphere now. While government dithers... Is there a private sector solution? Is there a way that that some Steve Jobs is going to figure out what we can do and make money from it? And that would be a wonderful thing if they could both make money and save the planet at the same time. Yeah, you know, and I think there really is a role um, in the business world. And you're seeing that, for example, from uh, some of the investment banks um, and finance firms where increasingly they're starting to see this as a matter of their fiduciary responsibility, right? <laughs> your fiduciary responsibility to your client, uh, your client certainly should include not destroying the planet that they live on. And so what you do see is some, some big investment banks and some big uh, finance uh, firms beginning to say that we're not going to fund new fossil fuel infrastructure. And it is conceivable that as much progress will come from the investment world saying that they're going to stop investing in fossil fuels as will come from sort of governmental top-down approaches. Dr. Mann, uh, 
Former Vice President Al Gore was on a number of talk programs this past weekend talking about exactly the same subject. He put it in a context that is controversial. Give a listen to this clip and tell me what you think. You know, the climate deniers uh, uh, are really in some ways similar to all of those uh, almost 400 law enforcement officers in Uvalde, Texas, who were waiting outside an unlocked door uh, while the children were being massacred. They heard the screams, they heard the gunshots, and uh, nobody stepped forward. And God bless those families who've suffered so much. And law enforcement officials tell us that's not typical of what uh, law enforcement usually does. And confronted with this global emergency, what we're doing with our inaction and failing to walk through the door and stop the killing uh, is not typical of what we are capable of as human beings. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, obviously, it's an emotionally charged and, and politically charged matter that he's weighing into. And, and there's always some danger in doing that and drawing an analogy in that way. Um, the larger point he's trying to make, um, I certainly agree with that this is an emergency. And right now, we do have a lot of, you know, influential um, politicians, uh, opinion leaders, captains of industry, you name it, who are just sort of twiddling their thumbs, um, fiddling while Rome burns. Uh, you know, maybe that's a, an appropriate analogy of the planet burns. And so it is true that we're not seeing the sort of the sense of urgency that we need to see among many of our policymakers, many of our politicians. And that's certainly true among the, the, the small but very vocal remaining uh, climate change deniers, the small group of vocal, uh, you know, uh, politicians who still literally deny that it's happening. Um, but, you know, I think you alluded to uh, earlier, Joe Manchin, uh, you know, we can't get climate legislation through the Congress right now with the current Senate makeup. And the only real hope that I see for meaningful climate legislation, and that's what we need, there's a limit to executive power. There is only so much the Biden administration can do. They're not alone going to be able to meet our obligation to lower our carbon emissions by 50%, an obligation we've made to the rest of the world um, that we need to keep if we're going to expect them to do what they can. And so to do that, we've got to pass climate legislation. And to do that, um, people have to turn out in droves in these midterm elections and elect politicians who are willing to act on the defining challenge of our time, the climate crisis. Dr. Mann, a final question, because in, in your most recent book, you speak of inactivists. In fact, here's the quote. You say, inactivists, as we have seen, have waged a campaign to convince you that climate change is your fault and that any real solutions involve individual action and personal responsibility alone, rather than policies aimed at holding corporate polluters accountable and decarbonizing our economy. They have sought to deflect the conversation to the car you drive, the food you eat, the lifestyle you live. And I get it. There's a role that government must play here and that the private sector must play here. But nonetheless, what about we as individuals? Yeah, it's all of the above in this case. Of course, we have to be, you know, as as responsible as we can be. We should be the best environmental stewards um, that we can be. And we should minimize you know, the the carbon pollution that we produce individually. Of course, we should do all those things in many cases. You know, the changes that we make to, uh, to do that 
you know, for example, bicycling more often or walking to work rather than driving um, by more fu- you know, fuel-efficient uh, vehicles or electric vehicles. Uh, all these things that we do in that effort, in many cases, they make us healthier, they save us money, they make us feel better about ourselves, they set a good example for others. What we can allow is for polluters to convince us that that's all we need to do. And that was the gambit that you saw uh, British Petroleum come forward with in the early 2000s. The very first individual carbon footprint calculator, or at least the very first widely publicized one, was put forward by British Petroleum because they wanted us so focused on our own individual carbon footprint that we ignored theirs. Uh, 70% of the carbon pollution comes from just 100 uh, polluting companies. And so, yeah, individual action is part of it. And, you know, the most important individual action that we can take is turning out, using our voice and turning out to vote and voting for politicians who can do the things that we can't do as individuals, who can put in place incentives uh, for renewable energy, who can block new fossil fuel infrastructure, all these things that have to happen that we simply can't do as individuals. Dr. Mann, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you when you get to town. The most recent book is called The New Climate War. Dr. Michael Mann. Thanks, Dr. Mann. Uh, Thank you, Michael. Always a pleasure. See you soon. Thank you. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Gang, thanks for the phone calls. Don, quickly from Salt Lake City. I talked about the Great Salt Lake a moment ago. What did you want to say? Uh, just because we're living this little bit of a nightmare here. Again, I've spoke to this before. Capitalism and the corruption will never allow us to get a hold of, of climate change because the Fortune 500 companies are big driving forces towards the devastation of the planet. And as long as we all want to worry about our 401ks, we're never going to get out of this with the future just- for our children. They just showed uh, on MSNBC Lake Mead over the span of the last 20 years as I'm having and I'm thinking about the Great Salt Lake and we talked about it. Lake Mead's the same way, right? Lake Mead is exactly yeah. experiencing the, the, the same problems. I mean, anybody with a window can see what's going on now. TC? Actually, there's been breaking news about Lake Mead in the past hour just now. Uh, a third set of human remains. Oh, my God. Found in a, in Lake Mead. Wait, in a drum? Well, they don't know. That was the first one. Was in a drum. The first one was in a drum. Like and Jimmy they, Hoffa stuff. They think it was a murder victim who died from a gunshot wound sometime in the mid-70s, early 80s, based on clothing and footwear. Okay. So that was number one. We have not found out the exact, um, mm, what do you say, location, right. situation about number three, but they have an area cordoned off and there are investigators there to pull the body. Okay. Well, it's got to be contained, though. You would, Obviously, right? Unless it was from, like, last Tuesday or something. Which... Likely not. Wayne, you're in California. Quickly, if you don't mind. Hi. I don't mind. I love the show. Get the newsletter Thanks. every day. Love that. Uh, I, live in Cal- I live in California. It's hotter than ever. Uh, our, our problem is, is that our biggest spokesperson, with all due respect to Dr. Mann, is John Kerry, who's also the biggest hypocrite. How are we going to compare? How are we going to change our campaign when our spokesperson doesn't live what he preaches? Well, I hope you're not referring to travel for his business because the guy's got to do his job on a global scale. You must mean something else, right? Michael, if you see him roll around town, he drives in a caravan of GMCs. Is that really necessary? I don't know. It might be. I mean, it's, we live in a dangerous world. A congressman in New York was attacked last week. John Kerry ran for president as a standard bearer of a party. 
I'm sure that he, you know, he faces a lot of I, I, I guess where I'm trying to draw the line is that I think he needs to be able to do his job effectively. That probably requires that he be transported uh, with some level of protection and, and, yeah, to fly all over the place. I'm sorry. I'm not convinced. OK. All right. Well, I, I will. I will do better next time. That was as quick as I could do on a short notice. John, you're in Dallas, Texas. Greetings. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, two quick comments. One, uh, we're of a similar age. I was born in 1960, and I can distinctly remember the weekly reader we used to get every week in school. And I can remember reading about the population explosion. And that's largely what's happened, right? We had 4 billion people, 3.5 billion people on the planet in the 60s, and now we're 7.5 billion, and it's just straining all the resources. So I think that's got a lot to do with it. A comment on the hockey stick... It's worth knowing that the scientific data that shows all this information doesn't really break it down when you get back thousands of years to 10 or 15 years. So some of that variation gets to be hidden. And if I can make one more comment and then hang up on Trump. Are you saying, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, are you, if we could go back further, I don't know if, if uh, scientifically we're able, you think that stick way back might flip in a different direction? No, what I'm saying is if, is if I'm looking at a 20,000-year time frame, I could have had a four-degree rise and a four-degree fall, and it might get lost in the re- resolution if that happened over 50 or 80 years. You might, there, there is you know, ups and downs in there. It's probably not quite as linear as it looks. That, that's my only point on that data. Uh, Donald Trump reminds me of Michael Jackson, and I'll tell you how. Everybody loves Michael Jackson's music. But what do you do when you find out the guy's behavior? I love Donald Trump's policies, but I'm struggling pretty hard. I, I kind of hope the Democrats. Uh, that is great. I've I have never I have never heard that before. That it, that really is an encapsulation of the struggle. You know, little, little Jackson Five and Michael Jackson as a solo artist. We all love it, and then it's ooh, wait a minute. You know, is it okay to listen? I think we went something. I think we went through. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it, John. I'm going to remember that. I think we went through something on our bumpers. Like we what, talked about it on the like, air. Right, right. What do we do with Michael Jackson the now? Peloton instructors were were verklempt, like no one knew what to do. But it's not like if I if I hear Michael Jackson, I really don't listen to conventional radio when he might. He doesn't exactly come up on Yacht Rock. <laughs> but if I heard Michael Jackson, am I reaching to turn it off? I'm not, especially if it's Jackson Five stuff. Here we go. Michael Jackson was a genius. But yeah, unfortunately, and I and I believe those kids. There's no doubt about it. Mark, you're in Montana. You most wanted to say what? Nobody ever talks about the health of the soil and capturing that carbon back into the soil. And there's a couple names that I've just come across recently. Guy down in Australia, Walter Yenny, J E H N Y, I think, and Dr. Elaine Ingham. Both of those people are really working hard on changing the, the matrix on climate. And it starts with the soil, capturing water in the soil. Is that going to be our salvation? They claim what do they say? it's a yeah. much quicker process to get to it. An hmm. easier process even. But we got to do it all. We can't just focus on fossil fuel and the air. you got to work on the soil. I hear you. Rural America could save us if you could well, get to it. I hope that I hope that will be the case. Thank you, sir, for that call. Floyd, you've got to make it very quick. I'm limited on time. Go ahead. 
My club been living at sea level for 50 years. We got drainage pipes that run out in the Gulf of Mexico. They said about six inches above mean high tide. Can you guess where those drainage pipes sit today? Tell me. About six inches above mean high tide. Wouldn't it be ironic that the next global catastrophe that wipes out human civilization is actually going to be an ice age? And the temperature that we call to increase during this time actually offset that ice age by 100 million years. (laughs) three Three days of melting in Greenland a foot of water over all of West Virginia. I, I'm a knucklehead. I need to have it expressed to me, you know, in bacon, lettuce, and tomato, BLT kind of terms. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. <laughs>